0: And I'm at the back of the line, just like everyone else, just because I have an Olympic gold medal doesn't mean I get to cut the lift line.
1: Welcome to episode four of Mostly Grateful, Slightly Hateful, the podcast where we talk about gratitude, but sometimes with a bad attitude. I'm Joel Zuckerman, the host. I want to give a shout out to my producer and podcast originator, Noah Lusky. He told me we should do a podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed what we've been up to so far, and I hope you are too. I have a very special guest today. This means more to me than it might to some people because I'm an avid skier. I've been skiing for 45 years, and I've always admired skiers. My guest today is an Olympian, but not just an Olympian, a medal-winning Olympian. And not just a medal-winning Olympian, but a gold medal-winning Olympian. And not just a gold medal-winning Olympian, but an Olympian who won gold in one of the coolest sports. There's a lot of esoteric winter sports. But our guest today won gold in moguls. At one time, the Olympic champion in mogul skiing, gold medalist in 2010 in Vancouver, a bronze medalist four years later. I am going to talk today to Hannah Carney. Hannah, you there? Yes, I am. All right. Well, thank you. Whatever you've done before, today's show or, you know, Jay Leno is nothing compared to this. <laughs> More intimate. <laughs> That's right. So I am so happy to welcome Hannah Carney. Hannah, like me, is a native New Englander. You are from a small town in Vermont, am I correct?
0: That is correct. Norwich is the town.
1: Norwich. And did did I understand your father or is your mother is has Canadian roots, uh, French? My mother.
0: Yeah. And they actually met at McGill University uh, up in Montreal. But my mom uh, grew up just outside of Montreal. And actually, all four of her sisters uh, still live there. And she only in the last five years became an American citizen.
1: And so I'm assuming you speak Francais.
0: I took French in school because we live in Vermont. It was so close. And after, I think, seven to nine years of French, I speak very little. But
1: you can find a beer in a bathroom.
0: Exactly. The important things.
1: I want to get to the question that's been burning a hole in my mind. (laughs) You won gold in Moguls in 2010 in Vancouver. And I want to know, how often does that amazing feat Cross your mind. You told me when you wake up in the morning, it's not the first thing you think about and you don't think about it every day, but it has to give you such a tremendous sense of satisfaction, you know, an emotional or mental pat on the back. That you accomplish that goal
0: that's it is a good question and because i had the day to think about it i was like aware of it today after talking to you about it yesterday it's like how often do i actually think about it and i think the answer is once a week well there will be like a day you think about it three times and then there'll be a day of days and weeks that go by and you don't think about it at all it can bring me to tears like just reminiscing about it and it's one of the only memories of my life that causes that emotion, and it's because the Olympics really are as special as they seem from from the outside for athletes in sports that, you know, don't get a lot of attention or glory except for once every four years. The precursor to the Vancouver Olympics is the, the beginning to my story, which is that I got third to last in 2006. And so going into 2010 and achieving the largest goal I had ever set for myself was, at the moment, redemption. Since then, it's just been Exactly that. A goal achieved. And I'm obsessed with goals and writing goals down. In fact, I had it on a piece of paper in my pocket on that day. It said, I am here to win a gold medal. I am ready. And that was in my pocket. And I'm not saying that if you write it down, it's definitely going to come true, but it certainly helped me in that case believe it. I think that's the key is actually believing that you're ready to win a gold medal. And I was. So it changed my life. And it's something I'm really grateful for because I experienced the opposite and it was terrible. It was just absolute failure and disappointment. Um, And then now more than ever, I'm able to be grateful for it because I'm like, oh, man, one wrong step and you lose the gold medal. And then you have to either wait four more years or you don't get the chance ever again. Everything fell into place on that one night in Canada, that it had to happen. That was my only opportunity. More than anything, luck. And so, for that, those are the moments that make me really emotional because of all the help I got to get there. It was just like, holy smokes, it actually happened. I actually achieved that goal that plenty of people set and not everyone achieves.
1: So, you, let's unpack a couple of things. First of all, even though it's the other side of the country, it must have been really cool for you to win that gold medal in Canada. Your, yeah. your mom and your aunts and your grandparents must have been over the moon.
0: It was amazing, because, especially because most of my aunts were actually there. And I think they were wearing, uh, Canada had done a great job of selling these mittens that had the um, maple leaf on them. And I think they were wearing their Canadian maple leaves, but then, of course, cheering for me. And it was capped off by the fact that I beat a Canadian who got the silver medal. She was by far the favorite. Canada was supposed to win. It would have been their first gold medal in Olympic uh, on soil when they had been hosting their own Olympics. They had been shut out in the previous Olympics they'd hosted in Montreal in the 70s. It, it's just so much pressure on this poor Canadian woman who ended up with the silver, and I got the goal. It was a night, of course, with the family connections and the drama and the redemption that I will never forget.
1: You were how old when you won in Vancouver?
0: I was 23 years old.
1: So you had a poor performance at age 19. Do you see how fast yes. I did that math? Impressive and and where where was that (laughs) olympic
0: that one was in torino italy
1: then you got bronze in 2014 that was sochi correct i guess 19 is not that young for an olympic mogul skier but maybe the expectations were lower back in torino for you you were newer on the scene i'm guessing
0: I'd been skiing the World Cup for about two years, but I was actually the defending world champion, or reigning, I'm not sure what the proper verbiage there is. I had won world championships the year prior. It seemed as if I could uh, compete at a high level with these same level of athletes on a stage that's important world championships and olympics are kind of the two biggest events of the year i went into that olympics and i just assumed that i could win because of the reasons i just explained right. and i was, looking back i was not prepared mentally or physically and it is hard to be prepared for your first olympics you've only watched it on television and uh, i distinctly remember being like wait Where's the NBC theme song? You know, the thing that like, gets you all riled up to watch the primetime footage. When you're actually there, that's not, that's not playing when you enter the course. It's the same competitors, the same judges, the same venue. It, it's actually kind of underwhelming in some ways. I was like, great. That bodes well for me. I'll just treat it like a regular mobile competition. And what I didn't do was embrace the fact that the world is watching. Your hometown is sending you messages and having parades to send you off to these Olympics. I kind of denied th- that it was that special and important, and I instead got really nervous, <laughs> and I just bottled it up and tried to block it out instead of embracing it. I did the opposite four years later. I'm not saying that was what made me successful four years later, but it certainly helped to know that once you fail, um, it can't get. I can't get much worse than third to last place, so that in turn took some of the pressure off and I also realized that even if I did terribly my hometown wasn't gonna disown me and my parents weren't going to not love me that sounds insane but that's the type of pressure that athletes put on themselves indirectly
1: and tell me about 2014 now you are the queen the defending champion give us the lowdown on what happened in your third and (laughs) what was your final olympics
0: yes I think that the tweet I put out that night where I missed a period because I had been crying for several hours. It says, bronze feels like a broken heart. And it did. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it said. You can imagine that I got some flack for that. Talk about being like ungrateful for the opportunity to compete. Rumors started swirling that I put the medal in my pocket after I got it. None of that was true. It was simply... I failed to perform as well as I had four years prior. For anyone who knew how hard I'd worked in that four years trying to come in and defend my title, I would hope that they would take back any, any mean things they said about me after that. I think it's a, a really interesting there's like scientific evidence that bronze medalists are actually happier than the silver medalists because the silver medalists lost out on the gold. The bronze medalists almost got fourth place, but that was not the case for me. I was an exception to that study because I was wearing the number one bib. I was the number one skier in the world and I had been for the last four years and nothing but gold was going to be satisfying for me. I should rephrase that. Nothing but skiing my best would have cut it for me and I made a huge mistake. I am so lucky to have been able to basically have a bad performance by me was still good enough for third in the world on that day. That now is how I view that. It's like a testament to the work I put in. I wouldn't have been strong enough for for prior. If I had the mistake that I did to be able to regain my composure and finish the run and get the bronze medal, I would have just fallen over. So yay for me for doing that. But it was a disappointment because I did not perform in that moment that I had been waiting for, for four years.
1: Tell me this and don't make my eyes glaze over. (laughs) What was the mistake Give it a, Give it to us in ABC third grade form for those unlike me and you who ski ski, ski all the time, what was the mistake you made the colossal mistake that cost you silver or gold?
0: Okay, first mogul skiing being lots of bumps and two jumps. I performed a backflip off the top jump. It felt really good. I had lots of air. I landed and threw my feet to the first turn, which was a big, big mogul. And instead of being soft and absorbing it and keeping your direct path is what they're judging on your form of your turns, I got rocked, as they would say. It tossed me. My legs blew apart, and I was basically standing on one ski with the other leg out to the side. I did pull it back together and was able to ski out of the exit, but your turns in line are 60% of the score. Having a giant mistake will cost you certainly the gold medal, if not all of the medals.
1: So 60% of the score is the judge's subjective view of how you skied, and the other 40% is time?
0: 20% time and 20% the difficulty and beauty of your tricks, the jumps that you perform. Let's face it.
1: It's a testament. I I don't know how many mogul skiers... Have managed to last three Olympics, but there can't be there can't be a lot
0: yeah with developments in sports science, people being able to train more strategically, it, people can last a little bit longer, but it, it, yeah it's a young person's game, obviously the impact on your joints, and then of course, now the acrobatic components of the jumps make it challenging to stay healthy and strong and hip with your tricks and stay competitive for that long.
1: When you and I first met. I said to you, because I always cut right to the chase, I said, how are your knees? And you said, they're fine. It's my back that's bad.
0: <laughs> that, yeah. I can, can I modify that answer two years later? Yeah. Ah, w- one knee's okay. The other one's fantastic. And then the back still bothers me every once in a while. But right. for sure, your backs take probably more of the impact than your knees. I think it's more common to have acute knee injuries that you need surgery and repaired and then really common to have chronic nagging back problems. Right. <laughs> forever. Like that aren't that aren't as easily fixed. Yeah, it's, it's like all back injuries. Yep, exactly.
1: Grateful, grateful, grateful. We're going to talk some hateful in a minute. The other day we spoke about the difficulties for Olympians after their time in the spotlight is over. But before we get to that, I want to talk to you about your upbringing. It's always been my impression that most of the racers, the ski racers, come from the East. And my theory has always been that if you live in the West, if you're lucky enough to live and ski in Park City or Jackson, Wyoming or Aspen, wherever it might be, you have this whole big, beautiful mountain to explore as you see fit. But if you grow up on a small hill back east and you get bored with it by the time you become competent on skis because it's up, down, up, down, up, down on a smaller hill with not that many vari- variations to ski, a lot of people get, they, th- those whose names we know who become great skiers end up on the racing program. So tell me about your upbringing. Where did you grow up skiing, first of all?
0: In the mountains of Vermont and New Hampshire. It was wherever had good deals on ski tickets for my parents, who both learned a little later in life. They wanted to teach my brother and I at a really young age, plus Vermont in the winter. Like, it's cold and dark, so it's one activity you can do. to Like, force yourself outside, you can do it as a family. They taught us how to ski. I actually learned how to ski. We had a horse, like a draft horse in the backyard that I think someone was boarding at our house and she had a huge horse halter. And so they just put my body in her horse halter and let me slide down the slopes. And I hated wearing goggles and I hated wearing mittens. I just liked having the wind in my face and I just went straight down the hill. Usually Burke Mountain. I think Michaela Schifrin made Burke Mountain famous. Burke Mountain had a great weekday only pass that my parents purchased. I know that at the beginning, of my life. That's where I was skiing. And the Dartmouth Skiway is really close to where I grew up across the river in North Tremont. That's where I eventually was exposed to freestyle skiing for the first time. And I don't think it took very many lessons. I think it was mostly my parents just like shoving me down the hill and I took to it. I really liked the feeling of gliding down.
1: Before I forget, because this is a small digression. Did I read that you, did you recently, fairly recently graduate from Dartmouth? Obviously, you weren't doing it at 19 and 21 and 23 because you were following your Olympic dreams.
0: I fairly recently graduated college. It wasn't Dartmouth. I went to Dartmouth when I was competing. I actually applied to Dartmouth when I was 23. I figured writing your essay about winning a gold medal was the only way that I was going to get into Dartmouth, and (laughs) I was right. (laughs) Um, at that point they had changed the essay I didn't even have the right SAT scores because they changed the format so yeah what got me in was that essay I did go to Dartmouth for four years I just went one trimester at a time each spring when I was done skiing and when I retired from skiing I transferred to Westminster College where the ski team uh, used to have a great relationship and was able to cover your tuition so it was a no-brainer for me at that point I graduated from Westminster but with my first year done at Dartmouth uh just Two and a half years ago. So And and
1: for those of us who don't have the good fortune of living in (laughs) Salt Lake County or Wasatch County or Summit County is a private liberal arts school in downtown Salt Lake City.
0: I had a great experience there. It was a win-win. Graduate without debt. The Dartmouth Skiway is affiliated with the college and is in Lyme, New Hampshire, right up the road from Dartmouth College. They offered, and I think this proves your theory about the learning how to ski and getting sort of bored. So by the time this after-school skiing program, um, we used to get out of school, it was like early release on Wednesdays to go skiing. And now I look at these Park City kids and I'm like, wait early release. We got out at 2 p.m. And by the time we got to the mountain, it was like at least 2.30, which means we've got an hour and a half of skiing on Wednesday. Not really the early release the, the other some other kids get, but it, nonetheless, we got to go skiing every Wednesday. And you still had to join the program. And you could join the Learn to Ski program or freestyle or racing. At that point, so at probably eight years old, maybe even seven years old, my parents had already taught me how to ski. So I was like, I don't need to join the Learn to Ski programs, even if there's different levels. My mother had a background in gymnastics. She had co-founded a gym in, in Norwich. She was, had taught some cheerleading and tumbling and gymnastics. So I had that in her background. She was intrigued by the idea of freestyle skiing because of the acrobatic component. This was long enough ago that freestyle skiing is the old school freestyle with moguls, aerials, and ballet skiing. It turns out that we loved it. Just once a week on Wednesdays at the Dharma Skiway, we spent, I'd say, 90% of the time doing ballet skiing because that's what was available. You just need a, a, like a green circle slope with a little bit of snow, no powder, just a groomed green circle. And you do t- spins and twirls and axles and uh, post-toasties and outriggers and tricks and you create a routine. That's how I got exposed to freestyle and I loved it.
1: I am completely surprised by that because this was in about, what, 90? 90... Let me think. Let me do some yeah. math. <laughs> Hang <laughs> I'll on. I'll just
0: save you. Early 90s. Early, yeah, 90s. The early
1: 90s. I thought the ballet fad, ski ballet, died out in the Late seventies, but obviously <laughs> I'm misinformed. I mean,
0: it it basically did. It was like a slow, a slow death, let's right. say.
1: <laughs> so I want to talk about the difficulty of mm-hmm. being a former Olympian, even an Olympic champion like yourself. It reminds me of the famous line, better to be a has been than a <laughs> <it> never was. <laughs> You and I were talking about this wonderful movie. I want to tell the listeners that they should make a point of going to HBO and watching the documentary called The Weight of Gold, which is narrated by Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all time, features a lot with Apollo Ono, the great speed skater who also won multiple medals. The gist of the movie is the terrible depression and literally the suicidal tendencies of Olympic athletes who train and train and train and get to the top like you did or don't like most who don't medal and don't do their best. And then it's all over. Their dream is over either after their first Olympics or second Olympics, whatever it is, and then they have to go out into the world and master new skills. Their whole focus of their life for the period of time they were training for years and years, if not decades, ends. Tell us a little bit about what it was like after your career started to wind down.
0: I think I tried to mentally prepare for it, but here's the thing. You can't prepare for it too much because that detracts from your singular focus of being the best athlete you possibly can. I think probably there's a correlation between the more successful you are, the harder it is to transition away from something. Some people are able to start little entrepreneurial endeavors when they're a competitive athlete and then they build on that. But I basically found that I was the best athlete when it was my full-time job spending Seven hours a day training in the summer. Not to mention, then you need to spend another time recovering. And you're not going to be going doing something else. I barely had time to go to school for the four or eight weeks I did in the spring. Even though you're going to lose that focus and that t- the way you were spending your time, it's still just a shock to your system. I think for me, losing my identity. Yes, I will we'll always be Hannah Carney, Olympic gold medalist. Losing my identity and then feeling putting this pressure on myself, like, okay, well now I want a new one. If I'm no longer doing that. I need to achieve something else. Obviously, as an athlete, I was competitive. I was born competitive, and I luckily found an out- outlet for it in athletics. It's hard to find an outlet for your competitiveness outside of the athletic world. It's a combination of all of those things. Oftentimes, you lose your support system. You automatically lose your friends, your teammates who are your friends, or vice versa. You lose all those people in your life who were helping you achieve your goals, and now you're just off on your own. Sometimes you don't have the emotional skills. You have the emotional capacity of someone like 10 years younger than yourself because you haven't been in normal settings. So there's the combination of all those things makes it really, really hard. This is when you use that, like remembering that you were a gold medalist to help motivate you. But then it can also be incredibly depressing. So it's like, okay, I was able to set my mind and achieve the greatest goal I've ever set for myself. I can do anything. That's somewhat uplifting. But then the other side of it is oh, great, I already had my dream job. I already did. I already achieved this goal. Now what the heck am I supposed to do? And you also compare everything to sitting atop the podium at the Olympics games, literally being the best in the world at what you did. Now you're doing any number of things that don't <laughs> compare to that. You're begging someone on Venmo to pay you for the training session that you just ran. You're trying to create an Instagram account for your marketing, your new business, or you're a college student celebrating your 30th birthday, trying to do a group project with some 18 year olds. Never been more frustrated in my entire life than that experience. Having what feels like the greatest time in your life happen so soon in your life, it can be really challenging and you just hope your best days aren't behind you.
1: You just hit the nail on the head because I'll give you, I'll give you an analogy that's one one hundredth of what you just said. Now, here's the difference. You were 23 years old, obviously very young. You achieved the pinnacle. I wrote a significant book in 2007. I was about 46 years old. Lucky to get the assignment. It was a big book. It was one of my many golf books, but it was one that got a lot of attention attention all across the golf world and beyond the golf world. And I knew when I was 46, when that book came out, that I would never do anything bigger than that. So thinking about it, I was literally twice your age when you won your gold. You were 23 and you still had hopes that you could, well, you can't surpass a gold medal, can you?
0: (laughs) No, but you you can have two, but two (laughs) is better than one. So
1: You could equal your gold medal, but I knew in my heart that when I wrote that book in 2007, it was about the great golf course architect, Pete Dye. That would be the highlight of my writing career. And it was, it wasn't a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was, but I was okay with that because, you know, it reminds me of, I once did a, a story about Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish. Yep, And I played golf with him and I said to Darius when we were playing golf, I go, do you ever think you'll have another album like Cracked Rear View which is still a top 10 of all-time selling albums. And he looked at me like I was crazy he said, "Do I think we'll have another one? We can't believe we had one." <laughs> right? It was so instructive. So I knew that I was at the top of what my my profession what I was doing when I wrote that book. You were obviously at the top of your profession, literally the top in 20 10 and you were young enough to think you could do it again, you have to resign yourself to the fact that, gee, I've been at least, at least you've been to the top of the mountain, even though it's impossible to stay there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's a shift in perspective. I look back, and that's the thing about mobile skiing, too, is that luckily I got to compete for four more years before that next moment of the bronze medal where the goal wasn't achieved, where I was still able to prove myself, stay at the top, satisfyingly achieve other goals that were smaller, building up to that. The timeline of the Olympics is one of the challenging things, the once every four years, those opportunities. I think it's really healthy to be happy, about for something that you achieved but in order to become a better person a better athlete and this is the reason i continue to compete is that i watched the footage of my gold medal run probably about a week later like the view that the judges see i was like oh that backflip was not good that was crooked okay new goal fix that backflip at first when you achieve the goal it's like okay do i retire now because i just did it so what i didn't set any other goals beyond that i was so focused on that one but as soon as i saw that backflip that was it. So for the next four years, that's all. And I will say, although I won a bronze medal, it wasn't the backflip that caused the problems. Well, maybe the landing, but my, I did improve the things that I wanted to over the next four years. I just, just didn't execute the gold medal winning run in that moment four years later. So um,
1: When you reviewed your gold medal run, you correct. were not happy with the backflip that you did.
0: Correct. And not not happy, just identified an area that could make me better and making a better athlete and a better competitor. That's when I moved to Lake Placid in the summers. I did 1,000 jumps every summer minimum in order to fix that one trick. This is what – I sound like a crazy person because, as we already discussed, that's 20% of your score of the jumps. That means one – Here's more math. One of those is just 10% of your score. I spent so much time trying to fix it because it bugged me. It was like aesthetically didn't look good in the run because I was afraid of doing backflips. I can admit that now. So that was a weakness of mine. I was able to make my weaknesses become certainly maybe not strengths, but less of weaknesses. That was what allowed me to be consistently successful for the next four years. Just unfortunately, that one Olympic day was not my day.
1: You are now involved as a trainer, and you also work for the USSA. Those are your two main employment focuses, training and being a spokesperson and an ambassador for the United States ski team. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: So I work for the ski team as a gift officer. Unlike most other countries, I'm not going to say all because then you get yourself in trouble, but most other countries, we don't have government support financially, that is, across all Olympic sports. So the United States Olympic Paralympic Committee and then all the governing bodies, including the United States Ski and Snowboard Team, we need to raise our own funds. I'm working as a gift officer to help the current athletes have the same or better experience that I had on the team. Thirteen years of uh, competing for the United States. Yeah, there were years where we completely ran out of funding, and that was hard. But overall, I loved every minute of being a member of the U.S. Ski Team. It was an easy sell when they asked me if this is a job I'd be interested in because I just feel strongly about it being an incredible part of my life. Helping raise money now for the current athletes is something I genuinely enjoy. It, uh, works with my skill set. And it's been, a, it's a part-time position, but it's also nice because it's using my past in a new way, but still not denying my past is what I originally tried to do when I was going to school. I was like, I'm going to do something a hundred percent different than skiing, but it is now proved useful to use the fact that I'm an Olympic gold medalist in the sport of skiing for both that job. And then the second one, which is working as a trainer, I'm a certified personal trainer and I train a lot of young athletes, mostly young female mogul skiers. That's the majority of my clientele. I like passing on the kind of knowledge I gained over my career when I was their age. I did not work with a trainer. I did not go to the gym. I played soccer and I ran track. I look back at my career and I had some bad knee injuries early on. I then became obsessed with going to the gym, obsessed with working with trainers. It made me a much better athlete. I wonder if I had done it younger, what would have happened? It's nice to be able to teach these kids about how to train so that they're empowered to go forward and hopefully have a long, healthy careers themselves and the gym. Also training, you spend so much more time training than you do competing or racing or playing, whatever sport you do, that you better enjoy the training part. (laughs) Otherwise, it's going to be a grueling career ahead of you.
1: You and I were talking the other day and you said that you're not going to deny the fact that you are celebrity you're a celebrity here
0: in park Yo, city
1: we- i don't think you're getting recognized in grocery stores in la tell me if i'm right or wrong
0: you are correct and now that park city is la i'm also not getting recognized in grocery stores here
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's three main types of people in park city realtors <laughs> olympians and trainers I'm guessing that you have a leg up on, no pun intended, on many of your competitors because of your Olympic background. Some of these parents or the girls themselves are drawn to you because of your uh, notoriety, correct?
0: Yeah, absolutely true. And hopefully they stay with me because I'm a good trainer that is helping them. But I think that is absolutely how it started.
1: We talk a little bit about gratitude with a bad attitude on this podcast. I know you're a little disappointed on what happened. I guess you're somewhat disappointed what happened in your first and third Olympics. You can't be disappointed. Actually, Hannah, you were even disappointed with the gold medal, with your substandard backflip. There's so much to be grateful for, but what sticks in your craw? It's a tough thing. We talked a little bit about the movie, The Weight of Gold, and, and it's not even... It's not even like a feeling like your best days are behind. It's a real problem. for And people you knew who decided that life wasn't worth living, thankfully, you're not in that headspace. But what are some of the things, as we conclude, that still bother you despite your wonderful pedigree?
0: well about 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 being me now and not the past is that what you mean well yeah well
1: we're talking (laughs) currently yeah i'm just curious it it harkens back to the beginning of our conversation where when you are like 99.99999 percent of anyone who's ever put on skis and did not win a gold medal or in my case couldn't even make the high school ski team It's just such a wonderful accomplishment, but it gets further and further with every passing day and every passing year. I'm just curious what kind of sticks in your craw in terms of life you wish would be different or just things that bother you on a regular or semi-regular basis.
0: Oh, we're gonna need a whole other hour-long podcast for what bothers me. And I, I would say in general, my attitude is just way worse now than it was when I was doing what I loved. I was more grateful in those moments just inherently because I loved what I was doing. I was doing what other people would do for past time. And it was like literally my job. And so now I just have a more negative view of everything. And I am very well aware, mostly because (laughs) my mother gave me a book in my Christmas stocking when I was like, probably, I don't like 16 years old. that said, happiness is a choice. So it was about just, you just decide to be happy. And I'm like, yeah, easier said than done. You know that if you're receiving that book, it's not going to be received well. If someone's gifting you that book, it's not going to be received well. I am very much grateful for the things that I have in my life that are from my past and the things that are around me, the place that I live, the family that I have, the sport that I have. But yeah, just ski areas in general bother me now. I I used to go there to train and compete and perform. Now I have to deal with Joe Blow and his family and everyone else from Texas and California in the lift lines, clogging it up. I'm at the back of the line just with everyone else. Just because I have an Olympic gold medal doesn't mean I get to cut the lift line.
1: I want you to start to embrace a phrase that will really help you going forward. Say to people, don't you know who I think I am? <laughs> you know what? I want you to wear that gold. I've had that gold medal around my neck. It's obviously not that valuable if you let me put it on. <laughs> I want you to wear it. When you go skiing and see where it gets you, flash it and see who will let you cut the line ahead of them.
0: Okay. I'll tell you one story and then we're we're ending this. I got to go make dinner. I... (laughs) I try the one time in my life that I okay I'm like mm, I've got a gold medal this I was at the Vancouver Olympics flying home from the Vancouver Olympics with my gold medal and I'm like if I'm ever going to like use I want a gold medal thing like now's the time and so I was trying to get out of paying for my overweight bag from all the uniforms and things that you accumulate when you're at the Olympics to the flight attendant I was like would it help if I had a gold medal and she said congratulations no and then i paid for my bag and then i have never tried to use my gold medal for to get anything like that ever again
1: this is a woman in vancouver her city just posted yeah the
0: but Olympics. i was but i was an american so fair enough oh
1: my lord <laughs> all right well you're hateful which i appreciate but uh, you're, you're also very grateful and it's a pleasure to talk to you and i appreciate you taking the time to speak with me here on mostly grateful slightly hateful
0: Thank you, Joel. It was an
1: honor. All right. Hannah, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. If you have an interest in donating to the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Foundation, go to donations.usskiandsnowboard.org. If you want to know more about Hannah's training business, follow her at Fitness From Afar. And if you want to know more about Hannah's personal life, follow her at Hannah Carney's flat stanley that's h-a-n-n-a-h-k-e-a-r-n-e-y-s flat stanley all of these links are available in the episode description or at our website mostlygrateful.com next week's episode of mostly grateful slightly hateful hannah carney who we just spoke to is an incredible athlete but you would never recognize her in a crowd next week's guest is literally the most recognizable person in the state of Utah. I am talking about Mark Eaton, the former NBA All-Star and someone who, when you see, you know exactly who it is. He's going to tell us about his early life, how he got discovered from a scrub on the high school basketball team to an NBA position and an All-Star position, his speaking career, and all that jazz. Join us next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.